Well, turning your Bibles to Psalms 42 and 43, uh, that is a little bit of a surprise for you. I'm actually going to deal with both Psalms this morning. And so we're going to deal with these Psalms, Psalms 42 and 43, a little bit broadly. Uh, many manuscripts actually have those two Psalms uh, uh, together, even though they appear separate in our Bibles. Uh, and also, you're going to see a refrain when I read the Psalms right now. Uh, and Psalm 42, verse 5, 42, verse 11, and then Psalm 43, verse 5, that is very similar. And so most commentators believe that these Psalms belong together and should be taught together, and I think I agree with that. Okay? So let me read Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence." O oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. May the Lord bless the reading of Psalms 42 and 43. One of my favorite preachers of all time, the dead ones at least, of the dead ones is C.H. Spurgeon. He's obviously home with the Lord now. He died in 1892. Uh, Many of you are familiar with C.H. Spurgeon. He ministered for a number of years at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. And he had a very, very fruitful, incredible ministry. Um, Much of uh, what we know now is just astounding to hear. And here are some facts about C.H. Spurgeon. At an early age, at age six, he read the Bible voraciously, and he read Pilgrim's Progress for the first time at the age of six, but went on to read the book more than a hundred times during his lifetime because he loved the Bible and he loved Pilgrim's Progress. At an early age, one prominent traveling missionary Someone has said, visited Spurgeon's family when Spurgeon was 10 years old. And that person, that missionary, foretold that Spurgeon would one day preach to thousands of people. And this came to pass. So already, even as a little boy, he stood out because of his love for the Lord. Even though he wouldn't come to know Christ, 
later on, until later on. By the time that he was 20 years old, listen to this, Spurgeon had already preached more than 600 sermons. More than 600. He's the most widely read preacher um, that we know of. He has more written literature available than any other preacher in history. It is estimated that his sermons fill some 63 volumes. The sermons 20 to 25 million words are equivalent to the 27 volumes of the ninth edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Just to put it in perspective, how much he preached, how much he said, that was very helpful. Spurgeon's personal library contained 12,000 volumes. And on and on the list goes of his accomplishments and the people that he led to the Lord, which obviously he found out who those people were in heaven, right? When Spurgeon passed away, just to put in perspective for you the impact that he had had on people, it's estimated that more than 60,000 people came to pay their respects over a three-day memorial period. Over three days. Those people wanted to pay their respects and talk about how he had um, impacted them. The funeral procession was about two miles long. All shops and businesses were closed during his funeral to just celebrate his life. He was a very faithful and effective minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you left Spurgeon's story there, and that was it, you would not have the whole story. Because just as much as Spurgeon had many victories... Spurgeon was a man who suffered much. Some of you are familiar with this. Physically, for years, he fought debilitating gout. He had physical pain. He had migraine headaches. He had constant ulcers, mostly due to the pressures of life and ministry. In fact, Calvin had many of these things as well, and many other preachers. Emotionally, he was a man, a man that was acquainted with sorrows and grief, as it, as it said of our Lord Jesus in Isaiah chapter 40. Most of those sorrows and griefs were the result of continual personal attacks, continual opposition, even to his own life and to the life of his family. He was often the, the object of slander and gossip and ridicule by his own, even evangelicals within his own denomination. Spiritually, it is much documented as well. That C.H. Spurgeon, uh, for whatever reason, struggled severely with spiritual depression and deep and profound discouragement. That was C.H. Spurgeon, who had a huge impact upon many a young man for ministry. In fact, he wrote one of his greatest works is a work called Lectures to My Students for Men Who Aspire to the Office of, of pa- uh, Pastoral Office to full-time ministry, and it's so helpful. It's been it's one of the, the key works in just solidifying my own heart's desire for pastoral ministry and shaping my outlook on pastoral ministry. So he had a huge impact even on future pastors. Little did he know how much more impact he would have through his writings a hundred years later, right? And I hope, beloved, that you're detecting a pattern as we've been looking through these psalms. That just as uh, men like C.H. Spurgeon, who we look up to and who are are very well respected in our circles, had difficulties and struggles with spiritual depression and discouragement and sadness and sorrow, the Christian life is not free of adversity or trouble. The Christian life is a paradox here on this earth of both joy and exuberance 
in what we have in the treasures of Jesus Christ, and at the same time, hard and difficult. It's a narrow path that we're on, the path of following Jesus Christ. See, we live in a time when things are not as they should be. When we live in a broken world full of broken people and we're looking to a future greater city where there is no more brokenness, according to Revelation 21, verse 4, no more pain, no more sorrow. But until that time, until Christ returns, we are called to live well under our suffering, whatever shape or form it may take. And there are examples in the Bible of those who experience great sorrow and sadness and other emotions that we're going to look at. Kings like Solomon and, and David. There were individual prophets like Elijah and Habakkuk and Jeremiah who was referred to as the weeping prophet. And who would have time to talk about the struggles of Job being directly attacked by Satan? And the godly women in Scripture like Ruth and Esther and Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 15, that it says about Hannah that she was a woman who was oppressed in spirit. And even of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says in Isaiah 40 that He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. Even our Lord had those experiences, and yet he was perfect and blameless. See, one of the problems that we need to overcome in our churches, especially conservative churches, is the wrong belief, the erroneous belief, that Christians are problem-free people who never get discouraged, who never feel afflicted, who never show sadness, who never are fearful. That the stronger, more mature that you are, the more polished you will be, and the less such language as struggle and discouragement or even depression should be part of your vocabulary. That if you are a person who experiences grief, then you are in some sin or you are failing to be joyful. As if there is no such thing in Scripture of being joyful while at the same time being sorrowful. We see countless examples of that in Scripture, do, not, do we not? Of those who even in the midst of sorrow and sadness and grief and affliction and feeling the weight of the world on their shoulders still had a deep-seated confidence and joy in what they had in Jesus Christ. It is possible to have joy and be sorrowful over the broken state of our country and over our sin. Amen? But we don't tend to think of, the, of things that way. And so Psalms 42 and 43 are really psalms that speak to us about these issues. They are psalms of lament. There are more than 60 psalms of lament, some personal and some corporate in the Psalter, the 150 psalms. And in the psalms of lament, the, the writers are expressing discouragement and sadness and fear and even anger about their adversity. And they plead in the midst of those sufferings for God's deliverance and rescue from trouble. Sometimes these are resolved within the psalm as we can glean certain things from the psalmist. Other times, as in Psalm 42 and 43, the psalmist, the psalmist ends essentially still in the midst of his fight for joy and for praising God in the midst of his difficulties, as we're going to see. And so we want to see these things in Psalms 42 and 43. Now we shouldn't stay there, right? What we see in Psalms 42 and 43 is that even in the midst of deep spiritual oppression and deep spiritual discouragement, the psalmist, in the midst of his own experience, telling his own experience in the power of the Spirit of God, 
teaches us some lessons about how to handle suffering, specifically suffering in the form of what we will refer to as spiritual depression. You won't find this terminology in the Bible, spiritual depression, but emotions like deep sorrow and misery and affliction and sadness and a troubled spirit and on and on and deep discouragement do appear, especially in the Psalms. And so for these Psalms instruct us as to how to live well, how to live well with hope personally, beloved, amidst our discouragement and deep sorrow and how to help others who might be experiencing spiritual depression in their lives. I want you to think of our objective in this sermon as twofold. It's not just for your own personal benefit, but also as you wrestle through these things by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, how do you then come alongside of other brothers and sisters in Christ and instead of being critical and quick to draw conclusions about what they're going through, really get to know them and be in a position to help somebody else respond rightly and live well under their suffering. Amen? And so first of all, The psalmist helps us here by calling us to embrace the reality of spiritual depression. The reality of spiritual depression must be embraced. Whoever the writer was, he was experiencing deep sorrow and discouragement, profound sorrow and discouragement. He's spiritually down. We see this in the repeated refrain that we just read. Look at Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. Verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Psalm 42, verse 6. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Psalm 43, verse 5. Why are you in despair, oh my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? You get the point? There's something wrong with him. He is expressing despair, meaning that he's at a very low point, cast down, disheartened, brokenhearted. Oh my God, my soul is in despair, sunk down as if in the bottom of the ocean as far as how I feel, Lord. He's pleading with God about this. He's emotionally and physically down and out. See, everybody gets discouraged. Everybody has sadness. Everybody has sorrow. Those are the common issues of life. But to be down and out where you are losing hope, where you don't want to continue on in life anymore in certain aspects, you even want to take your own life in certain contexts. That is down and out. Notice verse 3, he says, My tears have been my food day and night. I mean, he can't even hold it together emotionally. Imagine this guy is probably like welling up with tears as soon as he gets around somebody else because he's so emotionally full, ready to burst at the seams. He's so distressed that he doesn't even have an appetite. His tears are his food day and night. He's run down and it's all over his face. This is the portrait of this individual. Now there are particular reasons that we're going to see in a few minutes for the way that he feels. But here we must stop and pause and reiterate this again. Expect and embrace suffering, beloved, as believers, you and I, as we look at a broken world and we live in a broken world. In fact, the response of the necessary and natural response in many ways to the brokenness that we see around in our world, it is natural and necessary and reasonable that we would respond many times in sadness and sorrow. Otherwise, there's something wrong with you if this is your best life now. 
Suffering for the believer is not just part of being a Christian. We, ha- we throw around that terminology, don't we? It's a necessary evil. Suffering just happens to us. The devil made me do it. The devil brought it about. No. The Bible says that suffering is by God's design. He's sovereign over it. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter, writing to believers who are experiencing persecution for their faith, he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as if some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. He says it's part of being a believer. You're a sharer of Christ's sufferings just as much as you're a sharer of the riches of Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 28 says that to us, to believers... It has been granted, and the word granted in Philippians 1.28 is the verb form of the word grace. For to you it has been granted. This grace has been given to you not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Suffering is a gift of God. Even if we don't understand it, even if we can make sense of it completely, Suffering has a purpose, beloved, even as we will see in a few minutes and as the psalmist articulates for us here. And so as believers, just part of being a Christian, of following Christ, part and parcel at the core of that is suffering affliction in different forms and shapes. Just like a, a, a soldier doesn't join the armed forces thinking that war won't be a part of that joining of the armed forces. So it is as a believer. We must expect and anticipate that we will be in these difficulties as part of God's army. It's hard for us, isn't it? As Christians living in America to embrace this. I understand that because I feel the tension in my own heart. As soon as something happens in our lives, outside of what we consider to be the normal, according to how we define normal and routine and comfortable. As soon as something happens, something takes place that brings about sorrow and sadness or leads us to, to, to experience affliction. We think, this is abnormal. Oh no, Lord, take it away. I don't want this. Or we blame shift. We look for somebody to blame. What did I do, Lord? What did that person do to bring that about? Who is responsible for this suffering? Who is responsible for this tragedy? Who is responsible for these things that just happened? Somebody is responsible and to blame for my suffering. That is, beloved, in America, what we have to fight against. Because I talk to brethren in other countries, and I get updates from people that I know, brethren in foreign countries, third world countries, who share their prayer requests with me, and they live by the grace of God with the expectation that in the midst of their suffering that they embrace, they need to learn to live well under their suffering. And I think it's hard for us as Christians living in an America to understand that we need to embrace the reality of suffering, even in the form of spiritual depression in our lives. And so rightly responding to our sadness and sorrow and discouragement, beloved, begins by God's grace with embracing suffering. Embracing suffering. And this helps us as Christians deal with one another as well. To know how to come alongside of others and respond well to somebody else's suffering as well. 
You see, spiritual depression is not a taboo topic that we should, that we should be ashamed of or avoid talking about with other people. That as soon as somebody shares some sorrow or some deep discouragement, all of a sudden we want to tack on five verses on their forehead and move them along like a machine, like a robot. We should confess it to God and to others in order to seek the love and help of others. Spiritual depression is not reason for us to become critical of other people, to be shocked, or even become lecturers like Job's friends who were no help at all, were they? No help at all. Are you saying, Pastor Kempis, that we should leave one another there? Absolutely not. But what I'm saying is, is that dealing rightly and responding rightly to the, to the emotions that we feel of affliction and suffering begin by embracing the fact that suffering is a part of life. So that that informs the way that we deal with our suffering and the suffering of other people in this broken world. Now, secondly, what is it that's causing him deep sorrow and sadness. This leads us to our second point. We must recognize the reasons for spiritual depression. We must recognize the reasons for spiritual depression. And under this, we see from the psalmist's own testimony that his circumstances, first of all, are contributing to his condition. There's reason number one. a sort of a sub-point. His circumstances are now unfavorable. Whoever the psalmist is, he was an individual who used to lead in the worship of God and in the temple. Some people, that's why they believe that whoever the psalmist is, uh, wrote during the period of the exile when the Israelites were ejected from the promised land and taken captive by Assyria and then Babylon and eventually Persia. We don't know that for sure. It could be. But notice what he says in verse 4. These things I remember And I pour out my soul within me. What does he remember about his past circumstances? For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. You know what he's reflecting upon? He's reflecting on the good old days. When he used to be full of joy and thanksgiving and he would lead the people of God in the worship of God in the temple in community, but now his circumstances have changed. He is in a different place. In fact, he is away from Jerusalem where the temple was situated. Notice verse 6. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you. Where is he at now? From the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Mount Mizar there literally means little hill or little mountain. And most believe that Mount Mizar was a a smaller mountain on the Hermon mountain range northeast of Jerusalem. And listen to this. And that, and that it's from this point that a traveler going eastward could look back and catch a last glimpse of the city of Jerusalem. And so there he is now. We don't know why he's there in this place. We don't know how he got there for sure. But the point of this psalmist is that he finds himself away from where he wants to be. No longer in the favorable circumstances that he felt he was in before. He finds himself away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. And think about this. If he was a leader who led in the worship of God in the temple, that means that his connection to usefulness and fruitfulness and significance and a sense of self-fulfillment has been stripped from him from his perspective. And so, he's wrestling. You know, like the psalmist, 
Changes in life circumstances can lead us to such sadness and sorrow. Amen? Maybe you are moving from one season of life to another. Maybe you're moving on from being a parent of raising your kids to now you're a grandparent. And now you wonder, is there any, anything, that, anything that I can contribute here? Is there any way that I can be helpful? Is there any way that I can be fruitful? And going back to Titus chapter 2, I would say, yes, there is, right? But we could feel that way at least. In changes of circumstances, seasons of life. Maybe at one point you had a great job that was very promising. And you were going up the ladder, so to speak. Heading towards being a supervisor there. But you lost your job. And now you're in a difficult environment. And you wish you could go back to the good old days of the past. Maybe you're struggling with health issues. That impede you now from functioning the way that you used to function. From serving the way that you would like to serve. You feel limited. You feel like, am I of any use around here? Maybe you pursued a particular career and it didn't turn out the way that you wanted it to turn out. Maybe it didn't lead to a particular job situation. And you wish you could go back to the good old days where you had multiple options and now you seem like you've run out of options. Whatever the case, beloved, these and many other life changes can potentially bring hardship to us, especially if we don't respond in the right way, right? To those life changes. And how often, when we look back at these times, we don't think back of how good we had it. I wish that things were different as before. I used to have it so good. How come it can't be the same way anymore? It will never be that way again. And we become pessimistic Instead of looking back and and relishing and celebrating the faithfulness of God through all of those situations and embracing that different life circumstances and that God who doesn't change is still faithful, we fall prey to a never-ending cycle of dark valleys in our perspective with no end in sight. It's the attitude that says, it's all downhill from here. There's no positives at all. I'm done. It's all downhill from here, whatever age you are. It's that negative perspective. And we can get to that point when our circumstances become an obstacle, a hindrance, rather than a God-ordained opportunity to respond right for the glory of God and for our own growth before the Lord. Well, it's not just his circumstances that weigh him down. Notice, it's also opposition. Opposition. What makes his affliction even worse is that he has literal enemies, adversaries. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Verse 9, I will say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Verse 10, As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? You can just imagine them wagging their heads at him, right? or passively looking down in a condescending way upon the psalmist. His adversaries, whoever they are, are taunting him, speaking to him, where is your God when you need him? You speak so much about God, and look at what he's allowing you to go through. Where I thought he was reliable, Christian. I thought he'd always be there for you. See, we can have our own voices from those who are not God-fearers, those who are, con- who are completely opposed to God and His will on earth, and have those voices thunderously 
yelling at us. God is not there for you. He's abandoned you. And he's feeling this. Look at Psalm 43 verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? There are those who are ungodly, not just, not about God's purposes who oppose him. And it's getting to him, isn't it? He's mourning. He's even feeling a sense of rejection from God. A lack of, a lack of sense of the fact that God is going to vindicate him. And he's, and he's still pleading in Psalm 43 verse 1, Vindicate me, O Lord, because I don't feel vindicated. For us, it could be the same. We could have actual enemies who oppose the gospel, oppose what we're about, oppose the truth of Christ, maybe family members, extended family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors. But it could also be our world system, the mindset of the ungodly society that yells at us and uh, with a thunderous voice that God is nowhere to be found and that he's not in control of everything that's taking place in our country or all over the world. Where is your God, Christian? Say many today in our society. And that could lead us to sadness and sorrow and wondering, Lord, where are you? And it gets even worse. You know what's so dangerous about being in the state and trying to deal with this? It's trying to deal with it in isolation. In isolation. See, he's no longer in Jerusalem. He's no longer in the temple of worship. He's no longer with the people of God, worshiping God in community. And for him, from what we can see in Psalm 42 and 43, he had no choice. He was no longer there in a God-ordained way. But for many of us, beloved, we have a choice. And we choose to live independent of God and others and in isolation and continually not connect in the body of Christ. And I know I've ranted and raved about this through the book of Titus and I will do it yet again. You are not called to be autonomous, independent, living in isolation away from God and from other people if you are a believer. In fact, as a human being, that is at the core of your rebellion that you choose to live autonomously and in self-idolatry away from your Creator. And not in relationship with Him. See, as Christians living in America, beloved, we need to be so careful not to herald our individualism, our independence in the sense of from other people. I don't need anybody. I'm autonomous. Listen, the whole purpose of salvation was that you, by faith in Jesus, would be reconciled to your Creator as you are forgiven and as you are blessed with a reconciled relationship with him vertically. And then as a fruit of that, you are grafted into a body. You are a member of the body of Christ with other members who have turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus so that we are called to live not in isolation, but in community with one another. And I promise you, and I guarantee you, that your sadness and sorrow and deep discouragement, if you are there at this moment, will not be helped by running the opposite direction and being isolated and functioning independent away from God's people. It will not happen. That is a ticket to failure in this life, beloved. Even if your salvation is secure in Christ, 
You will not live with joy. You will not live experientially in the victory that Christ wants you to live in if you are an isolationist and, and an island functioning autonomously away from God's people. Am I making my point? This is why Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25, instruct us not to forsake our assembling, the fellowship of other believers. Because one of the beautiful benefits of staying connected and finishing the Christian race in this life in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation is that others come alongside of us in this Christian race to help us endure, to bring us cool water, to give us a massage as we're running, or to hold our hand and bear, uh, and bear our burdens as we endure in the Christian race. What a benefit! Psalmist is experiencing isolation. It's only going to get worse, right? There. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, quote, There is strength in numbers. The individual can encourage, challenge, or admonish the community toward faithfulness, endurance, or repentance. The community can provide a collective memory of the mighty acts of God that exceeds the memory or experience of one and provides the continued context for enduring faith, hope, and love. You know what he's saying there? If I can interject. That sometimes we forget because we're forgetful people about the blessings of God. But when we're in community, have you ever been there at a Bible study or small group when somebody's like, yeah, brother, but remember what you shared a year ago about how God took you through that circumstance? Remember in that passage that you talked about? Or remember, you know, I've been there, brother or sister, but uh, I remember two or three years ago how God used this scripture in my life. And ultimately, now I look back in retrospect and there was a purpose for what I went through. That's what happens in group community. People encourage one another. That is the blessing that God wants us to experience, beloved. That's what James Montgomery Boyce is talking about. He writes, for someone to be cut off from the experience of communal worship, as our psalmist is, is to be cut off from the sustaining ground of faith and hope and to be left to one's own poor devices to survive. Many don't, end quote. And it's true. Life is hard as it, as it is, isn't it? And we shoot ourselves in the foot and shoot others down. When we, don't, when we function in isolation or we encourage by our critical spirit when people share things and are transparent with us and we become critical towards them, give them the cold shoulder, we shut down transparency and we shoot them in the foot too. So here he is, isolated, not being in communion with the people of God, not worshiping with them as before. He is in the midst of experiencing the effects of opposition, attacked in all directions. And if all that isn't enough, he feels alone, far from God, abandoned by God. Look at verse 9. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Psalm 43, verse 2. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? It wasn't that he had forgotten intellectually speaking those verses or the the knowledge of God's omnipresent, that God is everywhere, or omniscience, that God knows everything. It's that he doesn't have a functional felt presence of God. He doesn't feel God with him. The same for us, right? Rather than feeling the presence of God, we feel away from the Lord. We feel far from Him. Lord, where are You? Where are You? I know the verses. I know the Scriptures. I know the history. But right now, I need You. We've all been there. 
in some way, shape, or form. Well, in addition to what we see here, there are a number of other reasons why people suffer from severe discouragement or depression. One of the books that you ought to read and pick up at some point, if you haven't already, is D. Martin Lowe-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression. Great book. So helpful. And he talks about some of the reasons why people experience spiritual depression, and I've added some to this list. Temperament. Some people, frankly, are more inclined to get depressed than other people. Physical conditions. Health issues discourage us and bring us down. We don't feel as effective as before. We feel limited. Tragedy in the family or death of a loved one can certainly discourage us, understandably so. Getting too high on the highs and getting too low on the lows, not remaining level-headed in life by the grace of God. The attacks of Satan, direct attacks of Satan, like Job or Peter, simple unbelief. We just simply lack stronger faith and the faith to know that God is allowing us to go through these things so that we would grow stronger in faith. Different seasons of life, going from childhood to a young adulthood, getting older, different life situation can weigh us down. Disappointment from unfulfilled goals or expectations in life. Maybe things that we expected to see at, the, at a certain stage of life that we haven't seen, so we're weighed down. We feel that maybe it's an issue of personal failure. Moral personal failure can do that. Weigh you down, understandably so. Or feeling like you've, you've, you're to blame for your marriage not having gone the way that you want it to go. You're to blame for your parenting. You're to blame in life. You're to blame for your job, for your career not going as it should have gone, for the relationships that you are a part of that are not going the way that you would want them to go. All of these reasons, beloved, are reasons why we can fall into deep spiritual sadness and sorrow and affliction. And we need to identify those things and ask ourselves tough questions and get the help of others to ask us the tough questions about why do you feel this way? Isn't that what the psalmist is doing in the refrain? Why are you in despair, O my soul? He's addressing himself. Digging deep self-introspection is healthy, beloved, but don't leave it there. We, we are self-introspective, assessing what's going on and the affections and desires and emotions of our hearts so that we can identify biblical solutions by the grace of God to grow and live well under our suffering, right? He's doing that. He's doing that. Trying to identify the reasons for why he's feeling the way that he is. And so we've seen that suffering in the form of spiritual depression is real. That there are reasons for it. But we can't stay there, right? We can't stay there. Finally, how do we live well under our suffering? Especially such a thing as spiritual depression. Jesus said that in this world we will have trouble, but I give you my peace. Meaning that, obviously that's a future eschatological end times reality, but it's also something that we can, that peace can be something that we taste in this life. So how do we do that? How do we live well under our spiritual depression? And that is our third point. We must strive to live well in the face of spiritual depression. And I use that word strive intentionally. Because it may not go away, you understand. Whatever you are experiencing today, it may not go away. God may have you there for the rest of your life. Or God may give you relief. And it's okay to pray for relief. As long as that's not the end goal above glorifying God and becoming more and more like Jesus through your suffering, you may very well stay there, however. So how do you strive to live well under 
such spiritual discouragement? Well, notice, first of all, that he's unabashedly, these are subpoints under that third point, he's unabashedly honest with God about how he feels. He's honest. You know, we will pretend with people, and people will respond a certain way and maybe give us the cold shoulder, and, this isn't leave, and that's not healthy for us or for them. We could pretend with people and put on a facade, beloved, but God wants honest communication with them. And we see in verse 1 that the, the psalmist communicates his longing for God. Look at verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? See, he's not just seeking relief. He's not saying, God, take it away. Crying out loud, too long, O Lord. He's not saying, Lord, I don't want to be in these circumstances anymore. Is that wrong to pray for that? No. As long as you understand that that's not the ultimate goal that God has. His purposes of His glory and your good, you becoming more and more like Jesus, are ever on the forefront of how He works in our lives, even in suffering, His glory and our good working together in perfect harmony in everything that we go through. God, I want you, He says. So intense is his longing for God that he describes it like a panting deer desperate for what? This is not just a deer who is, who is a little bit thirsty. I mean, this is a deer who is, who is famished and needs cool water. Couldn't find it, perhaps. He says, I'm like that. I'm emotionally and spiritually dry and famished. And he recognizes God is the source of that living water. Lord, I'm thirsty for you. I need you. Please. Pleading. How often do you plead with God like that, beloved? Or do you try to come to God as if you come to other people? Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Um, you know, I know that I need to get my act together. Um, I was discouraged before, but there are some extenuating circumstances, Lord. Right? And you start giving all kinds of excuses to God or forgetting the fact that He already knows everything that's in your heart. He simply wants as an act of worship and love for Him to, you to just pour out your heart to Him. Oh God, I am thirsty for you. I am doubting your presence. I am weak and frail. I am vulnerable and susceptible at this time. I feel deeply in temptation. Lord, I'm, I'm at the end of the road here. I need you. The irony of this psalm is that he feels abandoned, and yet he's crying out for God, isn't he? And that is so... I mean, I could say that about my life, and I'm sure you could say that about your life. Sometimes you don't feel God present, and yet you're seeking and seeking and striving, aren't you? Try to be honest with God. Psalm 63, verse 1 says, Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. I love those adjectives there. Or adverbs, my soul thirsts for you, my soul yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 84 verse 2, my soul longed, even yearned for the courts of the Lord. I want to be with you, Lord. See, we tend to shut down, clam up with others, and that's not healthy for us or for them. But God wants full disclosure, beloved. He is your heavenly Father if you are in Christ and he wants to hear the very recesses of your heart, even though he already knows what is there. He wants to hear it. Without embarrassment or shame, letting him know, I don't feel your presence. I'm discouraged, weak, struggling, Lord. And listen, when you come to God with that kind of broken heart, 
It says in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's going to be with you. He's going to respond to you. Second Corinthians 1 says that God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. Second Corinthians 7, verse 6 says that God comforts the depressed, the downcast, or the afflicted. Seeking God and being honest with Him is part and parcel of what Hebrews 4.16 means when it says that we need to come drawn here with confidence, with boldness to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, beloved, you feel needy at this moment. Whatever it is that you're going through, go to your Heavenly Father. He wants you to be sitting at His feet. He loves you. Notice also He struggles for hope. He struggles for hope. Because, see, when we are falling into what we refer to as despair, we are in essence saying that we have lost hope, but the Christian life is all about hope and the struggle for hope, right? It's all about that. And so there's a cycle in this psalm of going back and forth where he's feeling the pain and being honest and yet hope in the Lord. And this is who God is. And back again to, oh God, but I feel like you've abandoned me, but yet I'm seeking you. Back and forth, there's a cycle. You've been there, haven't you? I know you can identify with this as a believer because this is the life of a mature believer. Contrary to what we may think. It seems so simple, doesn't it? That he preaches to himself to hope in God. And yet, we lack the faith to do that, beloved. We lack the faith. Our faith needs to be strengthened. But not just faith. Nebulously, faith in the object of our faith, who is God, right? It would be understandable if we don't go to God or if we live lives that are defeated. If our God with a little g is a small, weak God, like many of the mythical gods of the Greeks, who were just like other men, beset with weaknesses, emotionally unstable, prone to the same sins and human weaknesses that any other man is prone to, it would be understandable if that is your God. But we don't worship a mythical God of the Greeks. We worship the God of the Bible, Yahweh. He calls him that. And that is the next point. He's reminding himself about the character of God. He reminds himself in the midst of this despair or feeling of despair about the character of God. See, our hope has substance. He refers to to God as Lord in verse 8 with capital letters, meaning this is the personal name of, of God, Yahweh. Don't ever read past the names of God flippantly, beloved. Lord, with capital letters, that refers to God's personal name. He's the unchanging, even though our circumstances change, God doesn't change. He is eternal. We are not. Neither is this present world, but God has always been. He is self-existent. He depends on no one for his existence, even though we depend upon God and we depend upon other people, right? God is self-existent. He's the self-sufficient one. He depends on no one. He's unchanging, eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient. Look at verse 9. I will say to God, my rock. God is strong. That signifies that word rock. God's fortitude and stability. See, this psalmist, amidst his changing circumstances, emotional, physical, and spiritual is affirming the character of God as the unchanging, unyielding, and strong one. And beloved, if we're going we're to struggle for hope, we need to find it outside of ourselves, right? It needs to be God who is the basis of our hope and the object of our faith. 
We need to be reminded that God is infinite in wisdom in our suffering. That he, he always knows what's best. He's not like us. He's not growing in knowledge. He's not going for more knowledge and more wisdom in different levels. He's already there. He's infinite in wisdom, which means that he always knows what's best. You don't know what is best. He does. Because he's infinite in wisdom. And you know what he calls us to do? James 1, in the midst of our trials, says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach. He's infinite in wisdom. He's completely sovereign, which means that he's in control of everything. And listen to this. God's sovereignty also means that he's got the power to bring about what's best. See, we lack that, don't we? We think we know best, and maybe if even we're right, we lack the power to be able to do it. God is sovereign. That means that he can always carry out what is best. Not only does he know what's best, he has the power to bring about what is best and for his glory in our lives. Beautiful. Look at verse 7. He affirms the sovereignty of God. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. All of those metaphors there of waterfalls and breakers and waves have to do with the trials and adversities that he's experiencing. And three different times he says, they're your waterfalls, your breakers, and your waves that have rolled over me. He affirms that God is ultimately the one who has brought all of these things about and is sovereign over them. I know that that's hard, but I would rather worship a God like this than a God who sometimes falls asleep when things happen. Because I know that this God, who is absolutely sovereign, will render the final verdict for how things will turn out in this broken world, beloved. Because he's got the power to do it. God is not helpless, distant, or asleep, very much in control of it all. God's perfect in love. Not only is he infinite in wisdom, he always knows what's best. He's sovereign, meaning that he always has, he has the power to carry out what is best, but he's perfect in love, meaning that he'll always do what's best for his people because he loves you. Look at verse 8. Once again, this beautiful word, loving kindness, chesed, appears again in the Hebrew. The Lord, Yahweh, will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me at night. A prayer to the God of my life. There's loving kindness which refers to God's chesed, God's faithful, committed, covenant love that endures forever, that is offered to us by faith in Jesus Christ because of what Christ has done. See, beloved, because of the cross of Christ, God always works everything out for His glory and our good. That's what Romans 8.28-29 says, right? He works all things together for good to those who love Him. Listen to Martin Lowe-Jones, quote, Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, remind yourself of God. Who God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. The ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. For if it were not for unbelief, even the devil could do anything. It is because we listen to the devil instead of listening to God that we go down before him and fall before his attacks. That is why the psalmist keeps saying to himself, Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him. He reminds himself of God. Why? Because he was depressed and had forgotten God so that his faith and his belief in God and in God's power and in his relationship to God were not what they ought to be. End quote. This is a view of God that needed to be heightened. He needed to be reminded of the truth, the objective truth, regardless of his subjective experience of who God is. Notice also that he takes a proactive approach. 
He takes a proactive approach. Rather than wallowing in self-pity, allowing his heart, his emotions, his feelings to dictate to him how he should respond in adversity, he informs his heart and preaches to himself. We talked about this before, right? This is huge. Our hearts, Jeremiah 17, 9, beloved, are deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand them? Namely, no one except God alone. Our hearts lie to us. Our hearts lie to us about who God is and that He doesn't care and He's not concerned. He's indifferent and He's not paying attention about what's taking place in your life. But we need to go to the Word of God and be reminded of the attributes of God and who He is and His dealings and His gospel. That He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, God calls, God sanctifies, God glorifies in and through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. We need to be arming our minds, dwelling in God's Word richly, so that we preach the gospel to our deceptive hearts, beloved. That's where we need to be. This is huge. I don't have time to expand on this anymore, but listen to what D. Martin Lowe-Jones says, quote, The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday to you. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing his self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Wonderful. And of course, you need it more than anything else. The glories of Christ, right? Preaching to ourselves the forgiveness of Christ, right? When Satan causes me to despair, upward I look and see him there. Who? Christ. The glorious, resurrected, exalted Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself, beloved. Two more and then we're done. He places his trust and petitions for God's ultimate vindication. He places his trust and in and petitions for God's ultimate vindication. Look at Psalm 43, verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And here it is. He trusts that God will ultimately bring vindication. Look at Verse 3, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. And does he believe that God will do this? Yes, because verse 4, he says, I will be there again to praise you once again. Then, verse 4, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. See, he anticipates that God will vindicate his name in this life or when Christ returns, right? Oh, beloved, we're not always going to be vindicated on this earth in whatever you're going through. But we're looking to a greater city, aren't we? A greater city. That's why we need to have a, a heavenly-minded perspective like Colossians 3.1 says. 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where our focus should be as we do mission on this earth. In Revelation 21, verse 4, we're reminded of that place where we'll be, there will be ultimate vindication. A place where He will wipe away every tear, where no man, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sadness. Amen? Why? Because of King Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Finally, He anticipates that He will once again be praising God. That's his anticipation. He wants to be leading in worship. For him, it was a particular position by what we gather here of leading worship. But he wants to be praising God. Verse 4 of Psalm 43, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. He anticipates that he will be there again. But throughout the psalm, you get the sense that even though he's in the midst of sorrow, there's that paradox again. He's still praising God, isn't he? He's still rejoicing. And so, beloved, though the psalm ends with him still amidst his struggles, he wants to praise God and anticipates that he will once again do just that. So many of the psalms end like that. They leave us hanging like, was it a, was it a happy ending? <laughs> it was, and it will be because of Jesus, Right? It will be because of Christ. Heavenly Father, O Lord, these are weighty things, but glorious things. Because, Father, we are living in a world where much suffering is a reality. Where, Lord, we experience that, even in the form of severe sorrow and sadness, in the form of spiritual depression. Father, remind us, who are here this morning even, who may be experiencing that and feeling that deep sorrow and sadness that you care, that you are concerned for us, that you love us, that your steadfast, loyal, covenant love, your chesed is there for us because of Jesus Christ and what he did, that because Jesus was forsaken, we have been forgiven by faith in him and we have a hope that is, Lord, uncorruptible and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us who are protected by your power for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh God, help us to live well under our trials and to help one another, Lord, that rather than being critical and judgmental towards one another, that we would, in relationship, get to know one another and bring your truth, the truth of your word, your attributes, who you are, and your glorious gospel that brings us hope to bear upon one another's lives. As we live in community, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.